Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Well, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of this passage, although at times they are puzzling. Lord Jesus, we desire to more fully embrace your identity this morning. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us to understand your word. And by your Spirit, Lord, help those here who have not yet embraced your truth to do so this morning by your grace. And for those of us who have embraced your truth, then encourage us in a fresh way this morning by your word. Help your church gain confidence in confessing and proclaiming the truth about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our worthy King. Amen. Please be seated. And as you take a seat, open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Have you ever looked at one of those YouTube videos of a street interviewer, maybe on the streets of New York City, asking the question, who is Jesus? I'm not sure I want to recommend that you do that, but it is fascinating to see the, really, the plethora of responses that one will get when asked that very simple question, who is Jesus? Probably my favorite YouTube video on that is, was filmed on the streets of New York City many years ago, and quite honestly, I looked at it very, very early this morning, and I'm not quite sure why it's my favorite, because it's quite obnoxious. Most of the answers are lame, and I'm being very generous there. Um, some of them are outright blasphemous. Rather than recount all of them for you, though, let me just share with you the last one that's shared on this particular video. A gentleman stands there, and in response to the question, who is Jesus, he simply says, well, it's a make-believe story that got blown out of proportion. For those of you here this morning that are bottom-line people, you want to know, where are we going to go, Tim? Where's the bottom line here? Well, the bottom line is this, is in this short passage of Scripture, verses 13 through 20, we're going to discover that Jesus takes his entourage, takes his disciples, and he heads north 
literally going out of his way, but he does so in order to make a point, in order to ask a question, namely the question we're going to focus on this morning. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that I am? And the reason he asks that is because his ministry on earth is about to shift for good. They're headed south. They're going to go to Jerusalem. They're not going to return to to Galilee, the region of Galilee, until after the resurrection. And Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples fully grasp who it is that they've been hanging out with for three and a half years. Whether you walked in here this morning as a longtime follower of Jesus, and I, as I look around the room, I see many who fit that category, or maybe you walked in here this morning with little or no understanding of who Jesus is. In either case, today's Bible passage may surprise you. Um, it, it hopefully will challenge your pre- preconceived ideas of who Jesus is or how he should act. In other words, your expectations of Jesus. This passage will certainly instruct you, uh, but more importantly, it will compel you to make a decision one way or the other. So I've got a question for you. Are you ready? Get your Bibles open, because we're going to take a deep dive, as, or at least as deep as we can go in 35 minutes, into the passage this morning. Let's start at verse 13. <clears throat> Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Let's do a quick geography lesson. Some of you might have a paper Bible, and you're already thumbing to the back to try to figure out where where is this. I think I've heard that name before, but I'm not quite sure where it is. Well, there were actually two Caesareas back in that day, but this is Caesarea Philippi. It's a very secular place, very pluralistic, mostly Gentile. In fact, in the early days of Israel's history, it was a place of Canaanite Baal worship. And then later it became a center of the worship of the Greek god Pan. And then recently it had been rebuilt by Philip, the son of Herod the Great. And he named it in honor of the current reigning Caesar. And he also named it in honor of himself. Thus the name Caesarea Philippi. Well, Jesus and his disciples have traveled 25 miles on foot due north of the Sea of Galilee to the headwaters of the Jordan River at the base of Mount Hermon, where the city of Caesarea Philippi was, the northernmost border of Israel. And it begs the question, why? Why go to such a pagan place that doesn't have a history of Jewish uh, following, let alone following Jesus. Why would he do this? Why would he go there? And I think it's going to become very clear because of the nature of the question that he's asking. I want you to notice, though, there at the back end of verse 13, that he actually gives a clue as to part of the answer to his question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's a phrase, that's a title that Jesus has already used nine times in Matthew's gospel. In fact, he uses it 80 times in all four gospels, and he uses it to describe himself. And he uses it in the context of giving a description that shows that he is, in fact, divine. It expresses his deity. He's borrowing it from the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. 
and it points to his deity. But that's just part of the answer. Look at verse 14. They said in response to his question, well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, what do you notice about that? What's the common denominator there? They're all prophets, right? Or teachers, or spokesmen, supposedly, for God. And they're famous. John the Baptist had recently been executed. In fact, uh, the person who executed him said, oh my word, when he heard about Jesus, John the Baptist must have been resurrected, right? Elijah was a great prophet who was caught up not passing through death, caught up into heaven by God. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wept over the city of Jerusalem, just as Jesus will do. He also spoke very negative things about the city of Jerusalem, which Jesus will do. Or could have been one of the other prophets. But each one of those descriptors, whether it's John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, each one of those descriptors is incomplete. It's somewhat accurate, but it only describes a portion of who Jesus is. It does not describe the fullness of who Jesus is or the uniqueness of who Jesus is. But that's what the man on the street, that's what the woman on the street, so to speak, was saying about Jesus. And then in verse 15, look at verse 15. Jesus pops the question. And it's the most pivotal question that he could have asked He said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And the you there, if translated correctly, gets translated you. It's, in other words, it's emphatic. He's looking them in the eye and he's saying, thank you for the uh, survey of what other people think of me. I want to know what do you think of me? You've been with me now for nearly three and a half years. What do you say? Jesus' disciples will not understand, nor will they appreciate what he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem unless first they clearly know who he is. And we're going to see as we walk our way through this passage, they don't fully get it. We'll see that as we approach the end. This is the central pivot point in Matthew's narrative. I was so excited when I saw that Pastor Scott had put me on the preaching schedule for this passage because I love preaching pivot passages because there's so much that leads up to this and there's much more to come as a result of this. This is the central pivot point in the narrative of Matthew's gospel. It's the the climax, you might say, of this gradual recognition of of who Jesus is and who Messiah is uh, by the disciples of Jesus. Now, the group has already expressed that he is, quote, truly the Son of God. You remember that? Back in chapter 14, right after Jesus and Peter walked on the water together, and they end up back in the boat, the disciples say, truly, this is the Son of God. They've already expressed that. But we're going to find out a little bit more today that they still didn't have a full, uh, full-orbed view of exactly who this person was that they'd been with. Jesus, in fact, had oftentimes acted, sounded like a Messiah, the Messiah they expected at least, but not all the time. Plus, 
Jesus had not yet embraced. In fact, he had not referred to himself as Messiah. In fact, he won't do that in the gospel according to Matthew until you get to chapter 22. When he's standing before the, the Jewish high priest, he's on trial, and he then definitively calls himself the Messiah. But up until then, sometimes he acts like it, sometimes he doesn't, and he certainly hasn't claimed it yet, at least in Matthew's narrative. Matthew Henry, who wrote uh, decades and decades and decades ago, wrote a classic commentary on the entire scripture, says this, it is possible for men to have good thoughts of Christ, and yet not the right ones. A high opinion of him, and yet not high enough. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers in England, said this about this particular passage of Scripture, and this specifically this question that Jesus is asking. Spurgeon said, this is the test question for anyone seeking membership in a local church. You cannot be right in anything unless you think rightly of Him. Well, the next four verses we're going to look at together unpack the implications of this question that Jesus is asking and the answers that are given. But first, let me give you the big idea. We, here at New Life Church, we, in our sermons, we have a, a concept called the big idea or, or the main thrust of the message that I want you to get today. Here's, here's what I think is the big idea for this passage. The answer to Jesus' pivotal question comes from God, is foundational for the church, and has eternal consequences. If you could pop that up on the screen, that'd be helpful. The answer to Jesus' pivotal question comes from God, is foundational for the church, and has eternal consequences. Those are the three things that bubble up from the, uh, an observation and a study of this, of this short passage of, of verses. Let's look at this together. Verses 16 and 17. As a result of Jesus' second question, Simon Peter, of course, steps up as sort of the unofficial spokesman for the group, and he replies with this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or happy are you, or attaboy, Simon, you hit it right, did it right. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. First thing I want us to notice here is that the answer to Jesus' pivotal question comes from God. It comes from God. Confessing truth about the identity of Jesus comes from God's great grace. It's a gift of His grace to even understand who Jesus is. It is his, the scripture says, it is his revealed truth. It has been a mystery in the past. Now it's been revealed by God. It's not Peter's character. It's not his religious sensitivity. It's not his desire to be the spokesperson for the group, his sincerity, whatever. It's none of that. There's nothing in Peter that enables him to believe who Jesus is. And as a result, make this confession. He doesn't have it. He doesn't have what it takes to do that. It's a gift from God. It, the answer comes from God. And the truth of his confession is this, that Jesus is both Messiah, Christ, same word, 
and he's God's son. He's Messiah, and he's deity. Now, where we sit right here, this side of the cross, that sounds obvious, right? It sounds like, okay, Tim, you're not, you haven't told me anything new yet. I get it. I get it, right? But understand, it sounds obvious to us because we're this side of the cross. We're this side of an empty grave. We have the benefit of hindsight, of uh, retrospect. To the disciples, to Peter himself, they're not quite sure, even though Peter is making this wonderful confession, you'll see in just a minute, he doesn't fully grasp what it is that he just said. And why is that? Because they had expectations of who the Messiah was going to be, of what the Messiah should, should be about. We call them messianic expectations. And the messianic expectations of people during Jesus' time were not exactly how we view it today. Let me, let me uh, ask the, a question here in a different sort of a way. Was Jesus' messiahship hindered by people's expectations? That's really a rhetorical question. I think the answer is a definitive yes, absolutely. Including his disciples. Including his followers today. And that's the, that's the point I want us to see here as we move through the passage. You know, as, as early as the very first verse of Matthew's narrative, chapter 1, verse 1, you can go back and look at it, Jesus is identified as Messiah. The term Messiah in Hebrew is the same as Christ in Greek, the two languages of Scripture, Messiah or Christ. Both words, Hebrew or Greek, both words translated into English mean anointed one. And it has the idea of being anointed as a king. Sometimes you would anoint a person for a, as to be a prophet, but in most cases, it's to be an anointed one as king. So it's a title denoting hope and deliverance. And primarily in the Jewish mind, it, it, it was a title that meant this was going to be a son of David, and this future son of David was going to restore the nation to the glory and the independence it had known under King David. In other words, it was a fairly nationalistic term, right? Messiah. It's a title that conveyed glory and success. Not the suffering, not the defeat, not the execution that's going to come in just a few chapters. And certainly not deity. In fact, the common view of Messiah was that it was a human deliverer who was coming, like King David, but not necessarily connected to God, sent by God, but not necessarily God. And so in Peter's answer, he almost um, unknowingly delivers on both accounts because he, he proclaims, he confesses that you are the anointed one. You are this deliverer, and you're also son of the living God. You are also deity. But Peter's insight, and here's the point, Peter's insight did not come from flesh and blood. It didn't come from his earthly father. He's, he's referred to as Simon Bar-Jonah. The term Bar means son, son of Jonah. Jonah is another way of saying John. His, real, his earthly father's excuse me, real name was John. So Jesus is saying, happy are you, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, but you know what? Your daddy didn't reveal this to you. What you just said, you didn't learn that from your daddy. Who'd you learn it from? My daddy. That's what Jesus says, my daddy. 
My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. True knowledge of Jesus is a gift, and it's a gift of God's grace. Now, Peter, I love it because he adds the adjective living, and that's a very characteristic Jewish way of referring to God. In order to distinguish God, Jehovah, Yahweh, their God, the Israelite God, from the lifeless idols that, they, that surrounded them. And mind you, they're standing in Caesarea Philippi, a, a place full of lifeless idols. To the Greek god Pan, to Baal worship, all kinds of, all manner of nonsense. Um, they're, they're surrounded by that. And what essentially what God is saying through Peter is he's reminding them that, no, this is the living God. He's the, he's the only God who has life in himself as creator, and is able to impart that to others. So, to know who Jesus is, that's not an ability that we have just naturally. It's not a personal ability. It's not an acquired skill. I can't go to school for that. I can't do an apprentice to figure out the answer to the question. It's not a reflection of our intellect at all. It is only God's grace that illuminates our minds and hearts to grasp the amazing reality of who Jesus is. Do you know that blessing? I know many of you in this room, and I'm confident your answer to that question is yes, but I don't know everybody in here. Do you know that blessing? Has God done that for you? Has God revealed the true identity of Jesus to you? Without His gift of grace and the knowledge of who Jesus is, we don't stand a chance. It's a gift. It's a gift. I, don't, I, I can match days in church and Sunday school with, with most of you in here at age 71 because I was born into a church just like this. And you know what? All of those days, all of those superintendents, buttons and ribbons that I won and Bible memorization and stuff, that's not going to help me know who Jesus is, the reality of who Jesus is, because it's a gift. It's a gift from God. God gives us the gift of understanding who Jesus is. I love this, uh, this quote from Frederick Bruner. That's a name that you may not recognize. Uh, he's written a really good commentary, a very contemporary commentary. He's still living Bruner says this, how Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah will have to be worked out painfully until finally the explanation is nailed to wood. Powerful. The knowledge of who Jesus is comes from God. It's a gift from God. Secondly, the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is actually foundational for the church. It's foundational for the church. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, this is Jesus talking to Peter in response to his confession, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. When the true identity of Jesus is acknowledged, then a new community of people is established. When the true identity of Jesus is acknowledged, then a new community 
of people is established. That's what Jesus says. He calls it church, my church. I will build my church. This is only the first time that Matthew's used that word in his gospel. He's only going to use it twice. It's a Greek term that means, it's two words actually put together, that means called out ones, literally called out ones. It's people, a body, an assembly of people that have been called out from something into something new, from something old into something new. We throw that term around, church. His disciples would have heard the term. It would have, it even though Matthew uses it for the first time here, they would have been familiar with the term. Uh, in their mind, what would they have heard when Jesus said that? I'm going to build my church. What would they have thought of? What would come to mind? It was a word that had been used in the Old Testament to, to refer to the assembly of God's people, namely the Israelites. But they had certain expectations with that, right? And so they're hearing Jesus, but nevertheless, they're still, they've got kind of some expectations of what that should look like. And you know what? We are no different from them. We have all walked into a space which we call church. So when we think of church, what do we think of, right? The steeple and all the people inside, I forget how to do that thing, you remember the story. We all have expectations, but we all have preconceived ideas of, of what church is. What Jesus is saying, I'm going to call out of an old uh, existence, or uh, let's just call it what it is, out of darkness, I'm going to call out certain people to be my people, my assembly, those who really fully grasp who I am. And once we understand who he is, then we get to be a part of this new thing that he's creating, that he's building. I will build my church. Now, if I was teaching the adult Bible class right now, and by the way, just let me, let me get a, 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 a brazen commercial uh, right on the table right now. If you've never attended an adult Bible class, I really want to urge you to do that. It's meeting right now. They, we meet twice on Sunday mornings during the worship gatherings. Cole Crone is in there right now just waxing forth on 1 Timothy chapter 4. I know he is because I saw his notes. They're wonderful. And uh, if you've never been to that, I'd encourage you to do that. But if I was teaching this passage in that room right now, I'd have an hour and uh, 10, hour and 15 minutes. Mm, that would be fun, right? There's all manner of rabbit holes in this passage. In fact, there's a whole church the Roman Catholic Church has been built on a phrase out of this passage. Okay, We're not going to go into, into those things. We're not going to go down rabbit holes. We're not going to compare the, the Greek term Petros, Peter's name, with Petra. One's masculine, one's feminine. I just did, but we're not going to do any more. We're not going to talk about, we're not going to talk about the gates of hell. We, I'd love to, but we're not going to go there. But I do want to talk about the foundation who, who is the foundation here? Or what is the foundation? Some would say it's Peter. I think they're wrong. Some would say it's his confession. No, it could be right. Let me just leave you with two uh, scripture verses from the Apostle Paul to get his view on this. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Or how about Ephesians 2.19 and 20? Paul again says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. What a wonderful assembly to be a part of, right? And then he goes on in verse 20 to say, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with who? 
Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone. The identity of Jesus is foundational for the existence of the church. The church does not exist apart from understanding who Jesus is. Or as Spurgeon, again, let's quote him, as he said, our chief word is not church in this passage. It's not church. It is Christ. It is not even the church of Christ, but Christ as God himself, the Son of the Highest. Many of you know that this uh, last week was Pastor Scott's 30th anniversary as senior pastor at this church. And I'm, frankly, I marvel at that. I don't know many senior pastors that are still pastoring the same fellowship 30 years after the start. And he, in a moment, of, or a couple moments of uh, transparency, he shared with our staff on Tuesday some reflections on what it was like then versus what it's like now. And I, I, it was so good to hear because he talked about he used to think that if you just had the right programs in place and you just had the right people to run those programs and if the senior pastor, namely him, could, would just occasionally come along and he used the phrase, adjust the dials on, on the church programming, then you could create an environment for success, for effectiveness. And that's what it was like 30 years ago. That was what it was like back in the day of church growth and, and whatnot. He went on to confess, however, he said that his approach got beat out of him during the decades of pastoring. And we smile at that. There's humor there. There's a lot of reality there, too. I can identify with him, although I haven't served that long at one specific church. But wow. But here's the point. The point he was making is that the building of the church was not and it is not his responsibility. It's not his job. Whose job is it? Jesus. It's the task belonging to Jesus. Let's look at verse 19. Jesus goes on to say, and mind you, he's, he's still talking to Peter here and the apostles. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There are at least a half a dozen landmines in this verse alone, and it's easy to get kind of wrapped around the axle trying to parse these out. And I'm going to be very direct and very simple here. I believe what's, what Jesus is indicating here is that the answer to the question, who is Jesus, is, or rather, has eternal consequences. Let me show you how. The answer to that question has eternal consequences. The terms bind and loose are actually common Jewish rabbinical terms to indicate how you would set the terms of conduct within an assembly of God's people. Does that make sense? It's kind of an idiomatic way of, of saying or declaring what is permitted in the community and what's not permitted in the community. Binding and loosing. In other words, it speaks of administrative authority or the authority to set the rules and the norms for the group. That's exactly what God, Jesus is saying to Peter. I'm going I'm to give you the keys to do that. 
And then two chapters later in chapter 18, he says nearly the same, exact same thing to the and says uh, the, the same thing. In, in, in other words, he's giving Peter and these apostles this administrative authority to set the rules and the norms for the group, the church, that's going to come up after Jesus is resurrected. For example, when Peter makes decisions, or Peter and John uh, make decisions regarding the new community, the church, in the book of Acts, it'll be discovered that the decisions that they render to the people have actually already been made in heaven. They're just exercising the administrative authority of something that God has already done. Here's the easiest way to to state this. Back in chapter 6, in the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus has already taught them to pray about this. And now he's extending the keys of the kingdom to Peter and the apostles so that they can make that a reality. In other words, Jesus is vesting uh, into Peter and the apostles the authority to bind and loose through the preaching and teaching of his word and through discipline in the church. And they demonstrate that. Mind you, it it doesn't take long. (laughs) Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down at Pentecost, and who stands up? Peter, former fisherman. He'd not gone to rabbinical seminary. He gets up and he uncorks an amazing Old Testament-filled sermon. Oh, just a few people responded, right? 3,000. Absolutely amazing. He is fleshing out the reality of what Jesus has just said to him. I believe the keys of the kingdom of heaven, just to be very direct and very simple, primarily refer to the good news. What we call the good news. The good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. They're not there yet, but they're soon to to witness that. What we call the gospel. So the answer to the question, who is Jesus, has eternal consequences. Now look at verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. Wait, what? What's going on here? Why the secrecy? Where's the harm in that? Well, I'm going to invite you to come back next week for the answer. Uh, That's the easy way out. Um, But you'll hear the the actual answer next week, because in the next uh, three verses, 21, 22, and 23, Peter is going to reveal his own misconception of what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah. In fact, in the parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus is quoted as saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That didn't set with the messianic expectations of the people. Even with Peter. Next week you'll learn, Peter takes Jesus aside to school him and to say, you don't really mean what you say there. That isn't really going to happen. And Jesus is very direct in his response to Peter. I won't say any more. I won't steal the thunder from whoever's preaching next week. But the, the point is, is that Peter, even Peter, who just gave this wonderful confession of the reality of who Jesus is, 
didn't fully grasp even what he was saying. But in the not too distant future, weeks, possibly months, Jesus is going to commission these very same disciples to do what? To go and make disciples. From where? From all the nations. And then the promise is given right before Jesus ascends to heaven. The promise is given in Acts 1.8. He says, and you're going you're to be given power, namely the Holy Spirit, and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, even to a place like Caesarea Philippi, to a pagan place like that. You'll get to go and tell them the good news. Well, as I conclude and wrap this up this morning, um, the, the, the point is this. The, the answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? The answer is not found here. The answer is not found in our thoughts, right? It's not found in our emotions. It's not found in our preconceived ideas. It's not found in our expectations who we think Jesus should be. As I said at the beginning, the, the big idea, the answer is found because it comes from God. And it's, in fact, foundational for the church. And it has eternal consequences. I don't necessarily like reading a, a lengthy quote, but I'm, I'm going to break that rule this morning because it's just a, an, an amazing quote from C.S. Lewis, probably the preeminent Christian philosopher of the 20th century. 71 years ago, he wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis goes on to say, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, Lewis goes on to say. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman, or else he's worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense, like the YouTube video, about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that option open to us. In fact, he did not intend to. I love that. How you, let me put myself in the, in the picture, how we answer the pivotal question, who is Jesus, is the most important question we'll ever answer the most important question we'll ever answer because it has eternal consequences so where do you stand today or where do you sit today have you received that gracious gift from god better yet have you embraced the truth about who jesus is what's your answer this is not mere mental assent to a truth about someone, about Jesus. No. And neither is it simply declaring stuff about him. No. This means embracing the truth of who Jesus is. Believing. Trusting. Committing. 
wholly committing to the truth of who Jesus is. And as your brother in Christ, or as a friend, or as a total stranger, whatever my relationship is with you, I want to urge you today, acknowledge, acknowledge who Jesus is in all aspects of his character. As Messiah, as deliverer from our sin, as the Holy Son of the living God. Submit to his authority. Turn from your indifference or your apathy or your preconceived ideas. Turn from that. Accept his forgiveness. Obey his words. And then do what the disciples did. Go and tell others about it. Go and bring others to him as well. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the, uh, just the simplicity of this passage. At first glance, there appears to be a lot of issues here, and maybe there are. And I know, I know, Father, that libraries of books have been written about some of those controversies, but really, it's a very simple passage. Jesus, you are asking us, what do we make of you? What do we believe about you? And your answers are very clear, are very simple. Lord, our desire is that we would fully embrace the truth of who you are. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you enable us? Would you empower us? Would you give us graciously this gift of understanding? And then would we believe it, trust it, commit to the truth of who you are, Jesus, as our Savior, as our Lord, and as we sang earlier, our worthy King. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.